Luckily, our new computer is silent. Should Pretty help. silent. It's got a lot of fans on it. But they're such silent fans. They're like the Kind of like you guys. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to the Four Corners Crimecast on this 666th episode. Okay, it's the 66th episode. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie, and today we are talking about Andrea Yates. And uh, where'd you do your research on this one again, Katie? This one was Are You There Alone by Suzanne O'Malley and Breaking Point by Susie Spencer. And where did we leave off last week, Katie? When we left off last week, Andrea's psychiatrist, Dr. Mohammed Saeed, had just taken her off for antipsychotic Haldol. Andrea had been admitted and released from Devereaux, Texas Treatment Network, a psychiatric hospital that did nothing to treat her severe psychosis. And they kicked her out because her insurance ran out, right? Basically, yeah. Rusty took Andrea back to Dr. Saeed on June 18th and reported that Andrea had significantly declined since being taken off Haldol. She denied being suicidal or having any psychotic symptoms, so Saeed refused to put her back on Haldol, telling Rusty it was quote-unquote bad medicine. Is that common verbiage when you're denying someone medication? Absolutely not. Especially when... It's the only thing that's ever worked for your patient. Instead, he upped her dose of Remeron from the recommended maximum dose of 45 milligrams to 60 milligrams. He also lowered her 450 milligram dose of Effexor by 150 milligrams, a very significant drop that should have gradually, over the course of a few weeks, taken place, not overnight. Andrea was almost guaranteed to suffer withdrawal symptoms. I kind of feel like this guy takes the dr cox aspirin approach where you just throw it in their mouth and see what happens and however many sticks that's what the dosage is that's all they need whatever they can catch in one throw june 20th 2001 began as a normal day for rusty and andrea rusty left for work around 9 a.m leaving andrea alone with the children for roughly an hour at 10 his mother would come over and help andrea with the children until rusty came home from work as Rusty left the house, he gave Andrea her morning medications and said goodbye as she was sitting at the kitchen table eating cereal from the box, something she never did. What kind of cereal? Cornflakes, maybe? Corn no, flakes. one of the ones that are like, it's round. Corn pops? Oh, corn oh, pops. I think it was corn pops. Gotta have okay. my pops, yeah. That's easier. I was thinking like fruity pebbles. Like those are, you gotta pour them into your hand and then dump them into your you mouth. just lick your finger and stick it in. At 9.56, Rusty got a call from Andrea, telling him he needed to come home. When he asked her what was wrong, all she said was, it's time. Rusty hung up and ran to his car, calling Andrea again once he was driving. He asked if anyone was hurt. Andrea said yes. Rusty asked who, and Andrea simply said the kids. When he asked which one, he did not expect her answer. All of them. So, in under an hour... She managed to kill all of her children. All five of her children, yes. And at this point, he just, like all he knew was they were hurt, too. So it's that much worse because you're like rushing to get there, thinking you're something you can do, and then there's... I think nothing. worst case scenario was going through his head. Yeah, I think at this point he knew that she was so sick that this was maybe a possibility, and he didn't want to admit it to himself, but he knew that... Especially after she said it... It's time. Yeah. Not long after Rusty had left the house that morning, Andrea filled their bathtub with water. She called Paul into the bathroom first, placed him face down in the water, and held him under until he was dead. 
She took him to their bedroom and laid his body on their mattress, covering it with a sheet. She then called John into the bathroom and drowned him the same way, placing him next to Paul on the bed. Next, she drowned Luke, placed him on the bed, then Mary, whose body she left floating in the tub. She finally called Noah into the bathroom, who saw his infant sister lifeless in the water and asked what was wrong. Andrea said nothing, only grabbed him and put him face down in the water until he was dead. Noah was left in the tub while Andrea took baby Mary out and placed her with the three boys on the mattress. That's so crazy to think that you could do that five times. So when someone's having a psychotic break, it's an, like an absolute break from reality. So the amount of time she did it, she did it without feeling or anything. She just did it or was she... Was it like a blackout thing where she, like one minute everything was normal and the next minute she was conscious again and it was done? I think, I don't know exactly because she obviously, when you're this deep in psychosis, you generally have memory breaks. And so she doesn't remember now probably what happened, but in the moment she was more than likely fully aware of what she was doing. But the issue is that to any of us that are mentally stable and not psychotic, this makes no sense. But to her, because of her psychosis, this was like, the right thing to do. She had to do this, and it made sense, and it had to happen right then, right there, and she she didn't, she wasn't thinking of repercussions. She was thinking that this was saving her children. I guess that's probably something we'll get into a little bit farther. Yeah, but the problem, you can never understand delusions. You can never understand hallucinations, because Unless you experience it, you have no idea what it was like. At 9.48, before she called Rusty and told him to come home, Andrea called 911 and asked for a police officer. The dispatcher asked over and over why she needed an officer, but Andrea would only say, I need him to come. Question after question was asked, and Andrea refused to answer. Finally, when the dispatcher asked if she was alone, Andrea said her children were there. Five kids was enough reason to send an officer for a welfare check. Around 10, Officer David Knapp arrived at the Yates home and was met at the door by Andrea, who was soaking wet and breathing heavily. Knapp asked her what she needed a police officer for, and Andrea, looking him straight in the eye, said, I just killed my kids. I imagine that's probably this dude's worst day on the job. Oh yeah, there's a ton of veteran officers on this that have never seen anything worse. Would they have not sent a welfare check to her if she hadn't mentioned the kids? Probably wouldn't have come as fast. Yeah, I mean, when there's, like, an open line or you can't figure out what's going on, you're still going to eventually get an officer. But depending on staffing, it's, there's a whole bunch of criteria that you are not criteria, but I don't know Mitigating what I'm factors. Yeah, yeah, there's... Okay. There's certain other priority calls that are going to happen first, and then they'll come check on you. Okay, that makes sense. But as soon as they're worried about there being kids in the situation... Yeah. Top pro top priority. When Rusty arrived home, crime scene tape was already being placed around the home. A reporter had arrived there first, and he was the one to tell Rusty that all five of his children were dead. Rusty fell to the ground and started screaming, pounding his fist into the ground. He then got up, threw a chair, then fell to the ground in a fetal position and sobbed. That's what I was saying about, like, Rory's probably right. He probably had the worst case scenario in his head, so it was probably already kind of prepared for it but at the same time he's like flying home and when you get there and there's already people putting up crime scene tape it, 
crime scene tape. It's got to be like unnerving to say the least, I guess. Well, in something like that, when you think worst case scenario and your worst case scenario is confirmed, you don't have any way you can deny it in your head or calm yourself with the thought that maybe you're just overreacting. So on his way there, he probably sped all the way there and was hoping for the relief. Yeah, hoping for a little bit of relief and expecting something bad. But when some random basically asshole comes and tells you that all your kids are dead without any buy or leave or or any training in how to let someone down with a grief counselor's ear or anything like that it's it's crazy to think that he didn't just beat the piss out of that guy and that i i mean i don't fault him for any of this i mean i'd probably do the same if something like that happened and you're literal the worst thing that could have happened to you in the world happened inside andrea was read her rights as she sat with an officer They described her as stoic, unmoved by what she had just done, but seemingly aware of what was happening. Officers found it odd that she was able to tell them where to find a clean cup and keys to the side door, despite being obviously insane based on the actions that brought them to the house. At the jail, Andrea was interviewed by a homicide detective and gave a full confession. She struggled with full sentences, usually only giving few word replies or just staring at the detective. When she was asked if she had thought of drowning the children prior to that day, she replied she had been wanting to do it since she realized she was a bad mother. She explained the children weren't developing correctly and had behavioral and learning problems. She said that she realized it was time to be punished for not being a good mother. After the interview, she was placed in a suicide watch cell where she sat all night with her knees to her chest, wide awake. So, at this point, it's got to be obvious that in the She's got outlying issues, right, that she's dealing with because obviously no sane person would do what she just did, and now she literally can't even form sentences. I think it was probably obvious to them, but when you're a homicide detective, your whole goal is to get a confession and make sure that you can use it in court. So I don't think he was particularly concerned with it. I think he was mostly saying, I mean, when I say that she described, she really didn't. He was basically saying... You did this, and then this happened? Did you feel this way? He just wanted the facts, and he didn't really care what was going on mentally with her. Oh, so he coerced her a bit. No, she did it. The next morning, Andrea met with a jail psychiatrist. She had asked that she be allowed to attend the children's funeral, and that her hair be cut so she could see if the number 666 was still written on her scalp. So, by cut, you mean, like, shaved? Yeah, she wanted, like... 07 Brittany. Yeah, no, she didn't want it all shaved off, but she thought it was, like, on the crown of her her scalp, and so she wanted that hair shaved off so she could see if it was still there because she had seen it before. So how how did she see it with her hair? She just knew it was there? Yeah, she pulled it back, or she... If you guys remember last episode, she scratched her head constantly so much that she would be bleeding, and so... She may have also felt it with her fingers or think that she felt it. When she was asked about the murders, Andrea mentioned there being a prophecy, but wouldn't explain what it was. She said, quote, I'm so stupid. Couldn't I have just killed one to fulfill the prophecy? Couldn't I have just offered Mary? Her psychiatrist tried explaining that her mind was playing tricks on her, but Andrea just said, No, it's not. I'm not mentally ill. It's real. The state will impose the death penalty on Satan. 
the drowning was the way. Are they in heaven? And that that's like the really hard part about it when someone has, you know, like mental issues or whatever like this is that they don't, they like no matter how hard, like it's really frustrating for someone sitting right next to them trying to explain to them like, Satan's not going to impose the death penalty or the, the state's not going to impose the death penalty on Satan. Like that's not the way it's going to work. There's no possible way. And it just, there's no way to really get it to click with that person. So what was her total thing against her having a mental illness? Why was she so adamant that she wasn't sick? There's a lot of people when they are psychotic that they refuse to admit they're sick because I mean, everything is so tangible and so real to them that they don't think that they are. It's not comprehensible for them to understand that what they're hearing and what they're seeing is not something that anyone else is hearing or seeing. Not something wrong with them. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of people have it, their psychosis links directly to, like, insecurities. So they will literally, like, the thing that they're playing up is stuff that'll make that's really important to them. Yeah, so she thinks she's a bad mother, which all moms eventually think at some point in time, but hers just happened to come in a cycle of her psychosis, right? Like her mental illness was spurned on from postpartum, so she's just had a kid, or was she always had this bipolar or whatever disorder it's like a predisposition to it yeah yeah she's always been bipolar but the psychosis was likely linked to the postpartum yeah it was likely postpartum because of the rapid hormonal changes that she went through and then also the massive stress that obviously being a new mother has yeah or having five kids brings Mm -hmm. okay would it be safe to say that this type of thing actually probably would happen more often with a mom of multiple kids because like the mom who has the first kid and gets through it doesn't really have the problem. Like once you get through the first kid, you probably don't have this type of issue going forward, right? No, well, you're no. pretty much guaranteed if well not guaranteed, but I think it's like a fifty percent chance if you've had postpartum psychosis, when you have another child you will have it again. Oh no, I mean like if you're already bipolar, you already have the predisposition, you have a kid and maybe you get what they call the baby blues, but you know, you battle it off and then going forward you're gonna be better or no? No. No, it's it's really hit or miss. There's no because it's I mean it's chemically spurred, yeah. so there's no way to know that if you're gonna hit that right perfect hormonal change that's gonna flip you Triggered, into psychosis, yeah. or if you're just gonna be depressed. And then in that case, if you are bipolar, you more than likely would not be considered postpartum depression because you would just be in your typical bipolar two depressive state. All of her replies were delayed, and her train of thought was constantly interrupted. It was obvious to her psychiatrist that Andrea was attending to internal stimuli, meaning she was having auditory and visual hallucinations. And also what, that she was, like, paying attention to them? like It's hard not to, yeah. You could tell that when she was trying to reply to you, she was, there were other things inputting information that she had to consider before she spoke. That morning, Andrea's family hired George Parnum to be her attorney. She met with him and Rusty on the 22nd, telling Rusty she was not going to plead not guilty and had no need for an attorney. Before they left, she looked at Rusty and told him to have a nice life. She also met with her psychiatrist and treatment team from the Harris County Mental Health and Mental Retardation Administration. Andrea told them, quote, I am Satan. You know what I mean. Did they know what she meant? No. Not really? That was just part of her thing. Okay. 
She also began to reveal what may have been the prophecy she was trying to fulfill. Michael Waranecki, whose teachings Andrea had followed, had long ago taught her Luke 17.2, which reads, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Andrea believed that Satan was in her, that there were cameras inside her home, placed there by the media, to watch her ability as a mother, and that she was a bad mother and had failed the children. She believed that they were going to hell, and the only way to save them and to get them to heaven was to kill them. She admitted to hearing voices, but said she did not need any medication. Psychiatrists started her on Risperdal and then switched her to Haldol the next day. Andrea continued to cite Bible verses, like Luke 12, like Luke 17 too, enchanting eat, drink, and be merry because we all shall die, very rough version of Luke 12, 19. On June 25th, Andrea admitted to hearing voices but continued insisting she was not mentally ill. The next day, she said that she heard the voice of Satan over the intercom in her cell. She also admitted that only a few days before the death of her children, she was watching cartoons and a message came across the screen that was written specifically for her. It said that she was a bad mother and her children were eating too much sugar. She also said that when she watched the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? with Rusty, a satanic character had told her she'd eluded him long enough. She told her psychiatrist that Satan was in her and he would be destroyed. Not by her, but by Governor George Bush, who at this time had been president for two years. She again asked her hair to be cut so she could see if the mark of the beast was still on her scalp. She was also having visual hallucinations of men on horses, teddy bears, and ducks all pouring out of the walls of her cell. That would be absolutely horrifying to see teddy bears riding horses throwing ducks at you or whatever form they were in together, coming through the walls. On July 2nd, Andrea almost completely stopped speaking. She was close to completely catatonic and would no longer discuss her hallucinations or the prophecy. Probably because at this point nobody was believing her anyways, and so she probably just kind of shut down so that she didn't further what they thought was going on. No, I mean, she had no problem sharing with them what she was seeing and hearing because she thought it was real, but... She just slipped back into that catatonic state that you sometimes go into when you're in deep psychosis. Like she had multiple times in the we talked about in the last episode. She was also on Ativan, which kind of opens you up and makes you feel drunk, and so you're more willing to share stuff. And then they stopped that, and she kind of shut down. By July 6th, she started speaking again, but was having memory problems. She told her psychiatrist she would be punished for being a bad mother, not the murders. She admitted she couldn't remember why the children had to die. Around a month after the murders and her arrest, Andrea finally began to come out of psychosis. In most cases, antipsychotics begin working relatively quickly in a few days to a few weeks. Andrea stopped having auditory and visual hallucinations on July 23rd. So, was this due to her? medicine regimen that it took so much longer to get her on an even keel or it's possible i think there's probably a lot of competing factors that went into why it took so long i think murdering her children and the stress of that her brain was trying to override the emotion that she was feeling and then at the same time too she was she had just seriously withdrawn from her effects or and she had 
been taken off her held all. Of course, after the murders, Michael Waranecki came out of the woodwork to try to explain her actions in a way that fit his rhetoric. Although Andrea held most of her communication with Michael's wife, and it had been infrequent, he believed he knew Andrea better than anyone. He said, For whatever it may be worth, I want to reiterate that Andrea's sole motive for her diabolical actions was revenge. It was deep, and it was intense. She had told me on several occasions of her intense hatred for Rusty. She pleaded with me for an answer on how to live with him. She despised him. Matters concerning God had absolutely nothing to do with any of it. All of the usage of Christian rhetoric by her and the media was nothing more than a smokescreen to cover her true motive. There's only one major variable. To what degree was Andrea drug-induced at the exact time of her actions? If she was severely intoxicated with those drugs, as I am convinced she was by Rusty, whose motives in dispensing these drugs was sinister, contrary to what he outwardly conveyed. He wanted to silence her while at the same time using her as his slave to take care of the kids. In this case, there is no doubt that Satan took full advantage of her by filling her mind with diabolical delusions with twisted Christian conclusions. Fuck this asshole. Seriously. Yeah, that's a stretch. No, that's this guy's major stretch. a huge piece of shit who didn't want to be thought that his teachings were what sent her over the edge because he doesn't have many followers and he's supposed to be this big dude with fucking ideas. And then all of a sudden, one of the people that actually did follow him killed his children, killed her children. Yeah, and he also was the one that constantly used that better to tie a millstone around his neck. And she thought, I'm a bad mom. I'm letting my kids stumble, tie a millstone out to sea, drown my kids. Yeah. So he's... His teachings were, I mean, directly in effect. What kind of caused her to choose that method? Yeah. Fuck that guy. On August 9th, 2001, the DA's office announced they would be seeking the death penalty in the case against Andrea Gates. In Texas, when the death penalty is a possible sentence, jurors must be death qualified, meaning that they will be willing to sentence a defendant to death. That can't be that hard to find in Texas, right? Yeah, I thought they had like an express line built in. They're like, this is the line for people who don't like death penalty. And everyone, like three people get in out of a hundred and they just send them home. During Fordois, if a potential juror says they do not support the death penalty, they are dismissed. A lot of people argue that death qualified jurors are much more likely to convict someone and not consider their other options such as not guilty by reason of insanity, in Andrea's case. You think? Before her actual trial began, everyone was basically in agreement that Andrea is more than likely not competent to stand trial. She was interviewed by multiple psychiatrists, and a, competen- and a competency hearing was held on September 18, 2001. The jurors deliberated for over eight hours and began with a vote of 8-4 to four for incompetence. As the deliberations wore on, the jurors somehow ended with ruling Andrea competent to stand trial. She was overheard asking her lawyer, what verdict were we hoping for? Which so obviously shows that she wasn't competent to stand trial. How did they go from 8 to 4 to swing the full other way? Like, that's a full swing, right? You have to go back to 5 to 4 at least, right? Yeah, I'm not 13. 13, I'm sorry. So 5 to eight. 7 to 8? That's not right. Wait, what are seven we talking to six. about? You have Let's to get, just uh... you have to get more than 50% of the vote. Right? Yes. 
So they went from eight to four, which is like solidly on her side. I don't know. Only the jurors that were in the room know what exactly swayed them to the other side. One of those four was really, really persuasive. That's all I'm going to say. On February 18th, 2002, Andrea's trial began. She was charged with the capital murder of Mary, Noah, and John with a deadly weapon. The district attorney held off on charging her with the murder of Luke and Paul in case they did not get the verdict they were hoping for in the first trial. Andrea pled not guilty by reason of insanity. In Texas, insanity is based on the Imnoten or McNaughton standard, which states that to be considered legally insane, at the time of the offense, the defendant must have been suffering from a disease or defect of the mind that caused them to not know the nature or quality of their act, or if they knew, or if he knew what he was doing, he did not know that it was wrong. Basically, to have a successful NGRI defense, one must have been so mentally ill or have such a severe mental defect that they did not know right from wrong at the time of their crime. In insanity defenses, the burden of proof is also shifted to the defense to prove that their client was insane rather than the prosecution proving the defendant was sane. NGRI defenses are only successful around 25% of the time because the insanity standards are so vague and jurors are often bogged down with so many expert psychiatrists and psychologist witnesses that they are unsure what testimony to believe. If anyone would be the picture of legal insanity, it would be Andrea Yates. Unfortunately, though... That's not how everybody saw it, right? The first time, yeah. There were only two psychiatrists testifying as experts in Andrea's case, both very famous. Dr. Philip Resnick testified for the defense, and Dr. Park Dietz for the prosecution. Resnick has consulted in the cases of Scott Peterson, the Unabomber, Timothy McVeigh, Casey Anthony, and many others. Dietz has consulted on or testified as an expert in the cases of Jared Lee Loughner, Richard Kuklinski, Arthur Shawcross, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Both are very well known in the forensic psychiatry world and are very experienced with NGRI cases. Unfortunately, Dr. Park Dietz didn't show this during Andrea's case. So when two experts come in to the courtroom, is it like Smackdown? They're usually on different days. One's usually for the defense and the other is usually for the prosecution. Yeah, so that's called... Battle of the experts, and basically, it's up to the jurors to decide who is more convincing. And there is, I mean, you don't have just one expert on each side. You can have multiple, and the court can also bring in a neutral expert to testify as as a witness, basically. So, like, in the Jeffrey Dahmer case, there was seven expert witnesses, and they all gave differing opinions, basically. And so... In that case, the jurors have to decide basically who they like more because your testimony is based heavily on how much the jurors like you. That's when it gets bogged down. Yeah, and really fucking confusing and hard to pick what you're going to convict them of. Jurors are like, I didn't sign up for American Idol. What's going on here? Dr. Resnick testified first, diagnosing Andrea with schizophrenia and clinical depression. He and Dietz both agreed that Andrea was suffering from a severe mental disease on June 20th, 2001, when she murdered her children. Resnick was clear and straightforward with his testimony, only giving his opinion when it was necessary and otherwise sticking to the facts he knew. Dr. Dietz, on the other hand, had a harder time sticking to facts and is likely the sole reason Andrea was convicted. 
He testified on his work consulting for the television show Law and & Order, Andrea's favorite show. He said that not long before the Yates children were murdered, an episode had aired about a mother who drowned her children and was found in GRI. Because of her insanity defense, she was acquitted and faced basically no consequences. There were two problems with Deed's testimony. One, those who are found in GRI actually have longer sentences than those who are just found guilty. Two, this episode of Law and Order, which the prosecution used as their proof of premeditation on Andrea's part, never aired. So even if it did air, I don't think you can use a TV show as evidence, right? I mean, it's not evidence. Expert witnesses basically just give their opinion, and his opinion was that this may have influenced her thinking, her thought patterns. It makes sense, but it still seems like a stretch trying to get that in there. It almost seems like he was just like trying to tell everyone that he was on Law & Order. <laughs> like, oh, that show, This look guys, there was a show, I was a part of it. You may have heard of it, Law & Order. I think yeah. he was asked about it, though. I think him and the, the prosecution talked about it beforehand, and they were like, oh, this is like our smoking gun, we're going to bring it up and find her guilty because of it. And so that's why they were like, oh, so what do you do outside of the courtroom? Author of Are You There Alone, Suzanne O'Malley, was at the first trial and also a consultant for the show. When Deeds testified about the episode, she did everything she could to get the show's producer, Dick Wolf, to testify at the trial for the defense. Unfortunately, he never did, and the trial was over by the time the information was confirmed and told to the jury. That information just that it was never aired? Yes. The judge ruled that Deeds fuck-up didn't affect the jury's ability to make a decision and denied the motion for a mistrial. Even though forensic experts can state opinions, it's extremely important they avoid what's known as ultimate issue testimony, which is basically them giving a yes or no answer to whether or not the defendant was insane. It's important that the jury form this opinion on their own, with the help of the expert testimony, not because an expert blatantly said it. When Dietz was asked if he thought Andrea was insane at the time of the murders, he said he would not give his opinion on that, but he would give his opinion on the, quote, defendant's knowledge of wrongfulness of the crime. So, in a trial where the jury was to decide if Andrea was insane because she didn't know what she was doing was wrong, Dr. Dietz testified that he wouldn't say she was sane, but she did know what she was doing was wrong. Isn't that just a cop-out? Yeah, he literally skirted around answering the question by answering the question. Part of the Hippocratic Oath, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it just seems fucked up. Like, you're a doctor, you're in a place of position, so now you can just shovel the shit down to one of your patients because they're on the hot seat. I mean, though, that's the problem with... Dietz wasn't one of her doctors, was he? He interviewed her, and then that... Okay. So, if he was not a forensic expert in this case, and he just interviewed her as a psychiatrist, she 100% has right to confidentiality, but when you're being interviewed in a forensic setting, you give up that right to confidentiality because... You have to be made aware that whatever you say can be used in court. Oh, the Miranda thing. Not really. I mean, it's more so the Hippocratic Oath, but basically they'll sit down and they say, hey, anything that you say right now, I can repeat in court and they can use it against you. So you have no confidentiality. Oh, you lose your doctor-patient confidentiality yes. at that point. Okay. Dr. Saeed was also called to testify, but skirted around giving any sort of answer that may make him look semi-culpable for the murders. His tactic was to either say he wasn't sure, or say he didn't understand the question over and over until the attorney grew too frustrated to continue with him. After the completely botched trial wrapped up, the jury began deliberations. 
No one expected that they would have a verdict in less than three and a half hours. Andrea Yates was found guilty of the capital murder of Mary, John, and Noah Yates. The jury was told to forget Park Dietz's testimony about the Law & Order episode before the sentencing portion of the trial began. Was that because they had the information at that point that that episode didn't air? Yeah, and he also came forward and like wrote to the judge and said, Oops, sorry. <laughs> They're like, also, it's a TV show, so maybe ignore that part. Yeah. After deliberating for only 35 minutes, Andrea was sentenced to life in prison. Andrea's attorney knew from the moment the trial ended, they were going to appeal her conviction. Unfortunately, costs held them back for a long period of time. To file an appeal, a copy of the court transcript must be attached. Court reporters, the people that type the court transcript as they happen, are allowed to set their own fees for copies of their transcripts. Andrea's trial transcript was 12,000 pages long, and the court reporter asked for $5 per page. Holy shit, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> for just her transcript, it would cost the family $60,000. So, how many page, or how many words per minute can one of these people type? Like, they type a lot, right? Because people don't stop talking in court so that the uh, stenographer... What do they call them? The court reporter. So that the court reporter can catch up, right? They just, yeah. like, it doesn't pause. So these people have to be able to be mad crazy typists. Yes. So $5 a page is literally probably like 30 seconds for them. They type in shorthand, so they have to actually go through and write it out. Oh, that's why it's so much more to actually get the transcripts, because now yes. you want, you're basically translating? Yeah. Most of the time, though, from what I've seen, court reporters will generally charge, like, a full fee and then like 10 cents per page after that not five dollars per page that's absolutely insane oh it's so like a base fee like okay yeah. it's gonna cost you twelve hundred dollars for the first 20 pages page. and then you pay 10 pages for however many more that you need um so yeah five dollars insanity and then as soon as she got it to the family someone who i assume was her put it on ebay for like thirty five hundred dollars a digital copy of it so not so, only did she make forty nine grand, she's like, "Yeah, I'll take eleven thousand discount because I'm gonna sell copies of it." Yeah, she was not doing her job correctly. Seriously, in the wrong business here. But eventually, the reporter was worked down to forty nine thousand dollars and told to begin preparing the copy. Months passed, with the court ordering the reporter to have the transcript ready by a certain date every few weeks, then letting it slide when she didn't have it ready. Finally, with their transcript, they were able to file their appeal. The appellate court unanimously agreed that Park Teeth's testimony likely influenced the jury and a new trial was required. In 2006, Andrea went back to court for the murder of her five children. After 13 hours of deliberation, the jury found her not guilty by reason of insanity. She is currently being treated at Kerrville State Hospital, where she will spend the rest of her life. Not surprisingly, Andrea was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and saw significant improvement in her symptoms as soon as she began taking lithium. So the whole time she wasn't even schizophrenic? No. So the Respiridol and the... What was the other one? The Hel Haldol. Haldol? Like, they really weren't doing anything for her? I mean, they were, in a sense, but lithium is the one thing that would have overall helped her the most. Wow. That's crazy that it took him that long just, like... Imagine if someone had diagnosed her correctly right off the bat and she just got lithium, which is the most common of all the drugs for that, isn't it? 
For bipolar, yes, but basically you know that you're dealing with someone that's bipolar when you put them on lithium and it works. Oh, because you can't actually, like, monitor them all the time to see their manic and depressive states? Well, lithium's just, like, the one thing that 100% or close to 100% of the time will treat bipolar disorder. So you can try all these other things, and if you say, like, put them on lithium, it doesn't work. You put them on Haldol, you can say that they might be schizophrenic. But when you put them on lithium and it works, they're bipolar. In September of 2003, the Andrea Gates Bill was enacted into Texas law. It requires healthcare professionals to inform pregnant and postpartum women of the range of mental health issues that can occur, not just postpartum depression or the baby blues. Rusty Yates stood by Andrea through both trials and has never blamed her for the murders. He visited her in jail as often as possible and spoke with her on the phone when he could. During an interview with Diane Sawyer, Rusty said he forgives her, but forgiving her would require that he blamed her in the first place. He says he's always blamed her mental illness for the death of his children. Rusty filed for divorce in 2004 and remarried, having a son with his second wife, who was said to be in divorce proceedings with in 2015. He still visits Andrea in Kerrville and calls her often. After the murders, Rusty began the website YeatsKids.org in memory of his children, which is still active today. In 2002, Rusty began the Yates Kids Memorial Fund, which used donations to educate women and healthcare providers of the mental health problems that can follow birth. Andrea spends her time making aprons and greeting cards at Kerrville, selling them anonymously and donating the proceeds to the Memorial Fund. She has said she will never actively pursue release, as she has no family to take her in. That's definitely the like epitome of a bittersweet ending. Like, obviously, it's terrible what happened, but at least that they've got this whole um, organization going now, where hopefully some good comes from it. I don't know. So, what does she think about her crimes? She knows she committed them. She knows what she did was wrong. What is her thought processes living her life in a state hospital? She's very obviously upset and is sorry and she still loves them and thinks about them every day but i think she's had enough therapy at this point to understand that the andrea that killed the children is not the andrea that she is when she's medicated and mentally stable so she's i assume has come to terms with it as much as you can and is healthy and happy where she is and doesn't want to ever be released so so there's not just one person you can lump the blame on. I mean, you can you can say that, yeah, it is Andrea's fault that her children are dead, but she was not in the right mind that did it, and the people around her were not the right people to be around her during her psychotic break, right? Like, even Rusty, a little bit, is semi-culpable. I mean, it's it's from a point of not understanding what was happening, but... He still kind of just let it be like, oh, well, she's fine after seven days and she just goes back again in a month. You know, it's one of those things where maybe if he had reached out sooner or maybe if they had talked together when she was first experienced this with her child or maybe not push her into having more children. I don't know. I just feel like the whole group of people around her are also semi-responsible for this like the doctors especially the insurance company 100 percent 
Texas for having a shitty legal system. I mean, obviously somebody should have noticed it. It it just boils down to a mental illness, and a lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people don't know how to deal with it. And unfortunately, the doctor who should have known how to deal with it didn't really deal with it correctly. It's honestly one of those weird situations where there's almost not really anyone to blame. Like, you could blame the doctor, obviously, but doctors treat a lot of patients. If we kill them, for, if, we, if we charge them with everyone they kill... Well, I'm not. I'm just saying that they they have some culpability in the crime. I'm not saying that they're the ultimate reason. They just, right, right. That there is some onus of responsibility on that person as well. So, like, if you can think, my my understanding of this is if everyone involved, if they can think back and have their hindsight as twenty twenty thing as to things they should have done better during the situation, they're partially culpable. Not saying that they're responsible, but. There is some responsibility that they need to take within themselves. Like if you're a doctor and you let one of your patients just slip off because, one, their insurance isn't good enough, and two, you didn't care enough about what another doctor said or the husband said to actually listen, yeah, you're you're partially responsible for that. And if he looks back and says, oh, yeah, I fucked up, then, yeah, it's, it's understandable. But I don't think any of these people did. I think he probably just wrote it off as this is a crazy person. Yeah, I mean, Rusty admittedly knows that he should have and he could have done more, but he is a victim of just being too trusting in the mental health care system because he, basically the entire time that she was, she started and to the time that she killed her children, he was like, okay, well, if you take her to the doctor, she's going to get better because they know what they're doing. So if they're prescribing her medication... They know more than I do. Exactly, yeah. They went to school for this, and that's what a lot of people think about doctors as well. They're educated, so if they're doing it, then then they're correct. And Rusty thought, okay, well, he said that she doesn't have any suicidal ideation, so she's not going to try to kill herself. The problem was that they never specifically asked her if she had any thoughts of hurting anyone else. Okay. So there's one fault there, and two, yeah, Dr. C, you just... Totally fucked up. I think he takes the majority of the responsibility because, like we talked about last episode, he spent a total of maybe 30 minutes with her when she was in Devereaux. So he could have, he should have done more, and he did not because he just didn't care. I see. Well, is that going to end it for this week? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you guys heard it here first. Blame Dr. Saeed. All right, guys. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list to send us ideas for any episode you want to hear about. Or to just get your free sticker from our merch store by entering the code BINGOBANGO at checkout. You do that and we will ship that sticker out to you 100% for free. So, as always, cornies. (laughs) We never decided on that. Stand Back and stand by. Do not.
if you're having any mental health crises or anything like that, please feel free to reach out to someone. Actually, definitely do reach out to someone. Don't feel free to reach out to us. Reach out to someone in your area, in your network, whatever you got to do. Just don't let it take a hold of you. Sounds like a plan. All right, guys. We'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. We're called uh, Milk and Beans. Who's milk and who's beans? Interchangeable. (laughs)